0: of, well, anecdotally a hell of a lot of people seem to get oh. a flu every year well, what what
1: <laughs> oh my God okay I need to disinfect that microphone after after we're done here <laughs> look at this
2: okay but look guys <laughs> so Ben are, how sad are you
0: well you know the Israeli elections have just passed the British elections were last year you know it's not I've got used to uh, electoral disappointments in the last few months.
2: But what does it say
0: that... um but I went into the Israeli elections thinking this was not going to be a happy few days of my life uh, politically.
2: Yeah, but I guess the difference is like Benny Gantz isn't a particularly inspiring candidate. Like, it's sort of like it's bad that BB won, but it doesn't actually undermine the case for a compelling alternative where I think that... When you look here with Bernie underperforming on Super Tuesday against Biden, that seems to be that that seems more sadness inducing potentially because people believed in Bernie. People still do believe in Bernie, yet something doesn't seem to have gone right. Something something went wrong. And it also says something about the democratic electorate that maybe the electorate isn't quite the way we thought they'd be, or the way we want them to be. And we have to maybe question some of our assumptions about who these primary voters actually are.
0: So a couple of mi- a couple of minutes before uh, the exit poll in the UK last year, I caught myself thinking, "Well, what are people actually on the ground been saying versus people?" You know, in London or on Twitter, been saying, and there was a huge split between people on the ground, both Labour Party kind of activists. I was talking to and journalists who were telling me it was going to be a wipeout, and the intellectuals, the strategists, the thinkers, the pundits that were going, and the the polling experts who were going, you know what? It could be it could be really close. In terms of what people have been telling me who've actually been on the ground in these primary states, they've been telling me two things. One is that Democratic voters are really scared, really want to beat Donald Trump, are extremely worried about children in cages on the border, the Supreme Court, corruption, crazy things happening on Twitter or to do with Ukraine, and that's their priority. And the second is, Bernie's won the argument on healthcare. And... I think whether or not what happened over the last few days is a Goldwater moment in a long road to a more left wing Democratic party or, or not depends on how strong that second point is. That is mm, it, mm. is it actually true that the population has been, you know, in Democratic primaries has been convinced that Medicare for all is the right answer? Certainly, the polls I looked at today seem to show, seem to back that up, in which Bernie was by far and away viewed as the better candidate on um, on healthcare than Biden. One thing that I think I do feel a bit of sadness about is I think that there was an opportunity if Bernie had done really well on Super Tuesday. To really like dominate the conversation on foreign policy yeah. for the next few weeks and use this campaign as an opportunity to talk more about uh, what could be different and what has gone wrong in America's like 5.9 trillion uh, war expenditure since 9 uh, 11. And now I think Bernie himself is going to tone that down probably. Or
2: maybe emphasize it because he has less to lose now. He might just go all out on certain issues that he's passionate about. Um, but I guess we'll see we should also I uh, think he
0: still has a chance like you know this is again like the split yeah. between people on the ground and people who are uh, uh, people who are kind of analyzing for 10,000 feet like journalists are on the ground recovering it tell me it's not over the electorate's very volatile there could be another debate something could go terribly wrong for biden he's a uniquely weak candidate people are, are unsure there hasn't been a strong counterattack like bernie can still pivot you know the people at 10,000 feet appear to have be, been uh, yeah. made up their mind quicker than the people there
2: that's a good reminder we should okay we our, our dear listeners might be confused as to what this british voice this disembodied british voice is <laughs> yeah
0: welcome ben Tudor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you you good to be do you want to,
2: do you want to say some words about our wonderful guest?
1: Uh, Ben Judah, uh, accomplished author, uh, really one of the, I think, fair to say, uh, most talented writers today and, uh, which I think is also just magnified by the fact that, and you're 20... Nine? Uh, no, I'm a bit older than that now. Twenty, thirty? 30? Very, How uh, old are you? I'm 31. 31, yeah. like, still, still, but, still. Uh, still. But, uh, I'm glad that my I'm, youthful I'm, looks
0: uh, the, the, are, the, sh- the, are the, the
1: thing is, is that, that Ben has I'm
0: recently so gone so many... to like, sort of products and stuff <laughs> to like, author age so
1: well he's already
2: the author of of two great books uh fragile empire was your first book about russia and putin and your second book wonderful title this is london which presumably is about london
0: well you could yeah you were you can't be mistaken there my first book was about the russian system and trying to understand like how the Russian state works, told through kind of characters and, um, and journeys, you know, trying to emphasize, you know, a bit before the curve that Russia was essentially a kind of fragile kleptocracy that needed, yeah. you know, aggressive propaganda campaigns at home and activism abroad to, to sustain that regime. And this is London, uh, was a book about London, like seen through the eyes of Immigrants, rich and Hmm. rich and poor, like trying to take inspiration, not just from, uh, well, but also from kind of Henry Mayhew and all these great kind of writers about London in that sort of British reportage, uh, technique of, uh, you know, giving a voice to the people that are not often, uh, interviewed or, or profiled
2: in the Guardian. Yeah. You like talking to the masses, don't you, Ben? You like, you like sitting with the people and hearing their views. Um, or not, maybe (laughs) he's like, actually.
0: But I really like, you know, when I was like a teenager, I, I got really into like my art, fine art AS level. And for a while, I did want to be a painter. Like for some, for some years. Yeah. And it was just like, I think I was about like 17 and a half and I like, i would like covered room, rooms and rooms and rooms and these sort of canvases of these just total pastiche, uh, early 1920s Viennese Egon Schiller misery faces.
1: Oh. And I realized I just don't have the talent for this. Did you, did you, did you save them all? Is there, is there an archive of, of Ben Judah Egon Schiller paintings? Uh, I uh, gave them away to oh. friends actually. So they were good enough for friends to
0: want to want them so they the the gallery dispersed to like student dorms around london and the uk
2: so there's like a bunch of them just scattered around with your old friends and they probably forgot about them but like in 10 or 20 years actually or 50 for that matter people are going to be like those are ben Judah's paintings when he was young when he was 17 well uh yeah but well you know <laughs> so they're, they're, i stress they're really not they're not that good So I should, before we just lose this thread, I want to go back to one thing. Cause I was talking to my mom on the phone on the way here and she had just listened to the previous episode, which she enjoyed. And she says, she says, hi Demir." Oh, hello mom. (laughs) And, um, but you know, she was saying that, you know, I, I was a little bit, um, sad yesterday. So just, I don't know when this will come out, but yesterday was the day after super Tuesday and, um, my mom emphasized this because some, you know, I've been doubting myself and wondering about like what all this means. And my mom was like, you know, uh, Trump's really going to like beat Biden. Like Biden, Biden doesn't have like a distinctive personality. Biden isn't a good speaker and, um, Trump is going to just dice him up in debates. And my mom, it was interesting that my mom is, I don't want to say she's like an ordinary voter. But she's someone who she's not following this as closely as we are. I mean, she wasn't up on Super Tuesday waiting for the results to come in. So she's not really plugged into what, as you said, Ben, the 10,000 foot pundit level discourse is. And I think that it's a good reminder that there are a lot of people who are very skeptical that Biden can really effectively go head to head with Donald Trump.
1: She's Pennsylvania. Yeah. And she's a Democrat. Yeah. Um. And who would she have, who would
2: she, was she a Liz Warren voter? No, I think she was vaguely sympathetic to Bernie in part Mm. because of you, (laughs) because Because of me, (laughs) me. But I think that, um but again, not someone who's very politicized. She, she knows about the different candidates and she knows that I went, I I was friends with Pete in grad school and stuff like that. And we've talked about how that means that my mother wants me to run for president in 2024. And my like, just Ben probably hasn't heard this. And my mom's not, she's half joking, but also half serious because she's like, wait, Shadi, like if Pete can run, why can't you run?
1: (laughs) And it, If people are married, why aren't you married? Same thing, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but right. So So
0: I I didn't actually know that you were friends with Pete in grad school.
2: Oh, clearly you don't don't follow my my Twitter, my long Twitter threads.
1: Yeah, I had had
2: a um, a sort of like epic Pete Twitter thread. Yeah, I, we turned it into
1: a podcast I, like, episode. I went, really Ben. I'm really. Hurt. I went off
0: Twitter to like write my book for two months, and this oh, is yeah. Oh, I'll blame it
2: on the book. And, like, Classic.
0: N- now, now I'm like back, like, <laughs> getting six, or seven hours of screen time a, a day. Oh wow.
1: Well, okay. so anyway, I, just <laughs> so I'm go, not missing any of your tweets. But but go back to this uh this idea. I mean, there were a couple of things you said there about uh burning at the beginning um <laughs> about about uh the goldwater moment that maybe this is sort of setting the seeds for something for the future. And there's a lot to that, right? I mean, Ocasio-Cortez is coming up. There's a generation that's been sort of uh, taught politics, you know, under the Bernie campaign. So you might, you might see it, 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 it sort of a uh, uh, flower in the future, but, but uh, I don't know, do either of you guys know about healthcare? Like I, Biden's not going to be Medicare for all. So, and is it, is it, I guess the question I have for you is, is how important is healthcare? And this ties to my bigger question to both of you about Bernie is, you know, uh, about the question of uh, the revolution, this sort of idea of just changing everything um, and how what you anchor that in. Uh, I know Shadi will will quibble with me on this, but it's the one thing that jumped out at me. Uh, with Bernie's sort of humbling and super Tuesday is that this idea, this, this class-based idea, or this, let's call it the economic-based idea. It's not enough of a glue. I don't know. And if maybe we can talk about that and, and Corbynism as well, whether, whether you see the parallel there. Well, it says the parallels between Corbyn's strategy and the
0: Bernie strategy these are very different politicians with different people around them coming from very different places in, uh, in the left with pretty different views on world affairs that really shouldn't be too conflated, I don't think. But both have this vision that non-voters... Could be key to winning, and the non-voters would mean that they wouldn't have to persuade large chunks of conservative voters or moderate voters behind their ideas, and wouldn't have to make too many compromises. And that appears to have been uh, where Bernie came unstuck hmm. on uh, on Super Tuesday uh, as well, in terms of like problems that Corbyn. Also faced in the uh, electorate and the Labour Party faces in general is that you have this incredibly stark age polarization now in UK politics. Is that uh, if a coronavirus uh, catastrophe, you know, does not—that's not, <laughs> not going to happen. But yeah. if it if it did, uh, and the UK was only inhabited by a population aged under thirty you know, the electoral maps are kind of absolutely stark. Well, sure, it would sure. be a completely red uh, map. And even under 40, uh, Labour would uh, not have won the election, but been in a very strong position to form a coalition uh, government. So clearly, the millennial left has a big problem, is there are just too many boomers. Right. And it needs to break off part of the boomer coal- boomers to to advance,
2: or it just needs to wait. Old people are a problem.
1: Yeah, but but again, uh, indulge me here. Right? Trump manages to do it. Boris manages to do it uh, with a kind of right populism, if you will. Right? Um, and then, what's the challenge for left populism? What's, what's our resources? It's like right populism is is about like defending
0: resources against others, and left populism is about redistributing res- resources. I think you know rhetoric and tone, and you know we can. That's important, but I think the fundamental nature of those politics are are different. Like something that I kind of realized when I covered the 2015 British election campaign for Politico, that uh, world historical uh, election, uh, was that voters, especially in these kind of marginal seats, you know, really think in terms of, of scarcity. They want to defend what they have, and that can shift quite easily from being Am I defending it from migrants? Am I defending it from the rich? Am I defending it from the Polish guy that's opened a shop on the the, the street corner? And uh, I think that's often a way of thinking that's left out of, shall we call it, left populist analysis. No, yeah. I, go ahead, go ahead, Shadi. I mean, well, okay, then let me again. Then this is something. Uh, you know, the form is not the most important thing. Like the substance is very different from right populism.
1: Of course, but you know, the, there's a. Any 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 movement requires you to to gather people and, and Shadi Your Piece in American Affairs talks about you know how a left populism might be able to do this right but I again correct me if I if I misread or misremember but the idea was uh, that that sort of traditional leftist categories like class like like inequality like these sorts of grievances could be almost totemically channeled to create a movement that would then go against the other to a certain extent right that was the the, the thrust of it and so when i when i was saying that 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 the the maybe the lesson of of at least this cycle and again it might be this goldwater election it'll bear fruit later but at least the election of this cycle is that these categories are not strong enough they're not strong enough and it's to your point about about scarcity versus versus sharing if you will uh you can you can maybe mobilize grievances economic grievances class grievances however you want to call it if the uh, uh what's it called the the um, the hurt is big enough that people are willing to take a gamble. I would say that the, the hurt's not big enough, and this is, gets back to my question on healthcare: how important is healthcare? Even if he in polls won uh, the Medicare for All, Biden's not going to get Medicare for All. Biden's going to get in bed with the with the insurance companies, and you're going to get Obamacare Plus or Obamacare on you know on, well, on black support. Just to
0: kind of, to, to kind of make, make a point here yeah. that I don't think that the rise of the millennial left in Anglo countries over the last few years has been a failure. You know, the left had ceased to be an insurgent and deeply challenging political movement outside of academia in the the late 90s and the early 2000s. And politically, the left has ceased to exist as a viable political force in Germany. It has politically ceased to exist as a force at all in france and in italy and in central europe and the fact that now we're talking about a populist left candidate that still could be the democratic nominee and had a disappointing disappointing super tuesday and we're talking about jeremy corbyn who was leader of the labor party shows that something has shifted And i think in terms of biden and healthcare so biden you know, I don't expect very much of it, all from a Biden administration, full stop. Biden is, at least on paper, I'm not sure he knows he is, committed <laughs> to a public option of yeah. some kind. Yeah, yeah. And I think that shows the success of these populist left tactics... And of just building an online funding infrastructure, of building an online army, and just being committed to politics,
2: and I think it means now being committed to the long slog. Yeah. So I'll say so a couple of things. I mean, so as you mentioned, Amir, I wrote this article um, for American Affairs outlining what a new left populism could look like in theory and in practice. And I'm a little bit of an odd, an odd situation in the sense that no one would mistake me for a socialist. I don't have particularly strong or well developed views on economics. I'm flexible though. I'm ideologically flexible and I'm not, and I find critiques of billionaires and corporations to be compelling, not necessarily in policy terms, but more so in moral terms and ethical terms. And so one of the arguments I make in this piece is that class critiques and economic critiques aren't necessarily a means to improve material outcomes. We have to move away from this idea that material and economic outcomes are determinative, that they're the number one issue. Um, Because I don't think people are fundamentally driven by narrow economic interests. People care about identity, culture, and the who they are questions. We care about who we are more than we care about what policy is best for our Economic interests. So when we talk about developing a left populism, we have to find a way to channel class arguments and class critiques for, for something that goes beyond the narrowly material. In other words, how do we use those critiques to build solidarity, to give people a sense of meaning, to rally the base, to improve morale? and to create a kind of, to build an ethical and moral framework for how we operate in political life. So for me, that's what was really appealing about Bernie. So when people say, well, Shadi, do you, do, you, do you feel strongly about Medicare for all? Or do you believe in putting the top tax, the marginal tax rate to 50% or 60% or whatever? That to me is missing the point. And this is also what bothered me. About people who are very excited about Elizabeth Warren. I have a lot of respect for Elizabeth Warren, but this, this focus on who has the best plans that here's Elizabeth Warren and she's putting up all these detailed plans on her website. And I'm like, that's not what politics is about. Politics is not to me fundamentally about policy. It's not fundamentally about legislation. And that's where I think the populist ethos diverges from the Marxist ethos and also the center left ethos. Because if you talk to center left folks, like the supporters of Mayor Pete or even Mayor Pete himself, um, they're fundamentally talking about how you can use politics to improve people's lives in this very narrow sense. Of course, we want to improve people's lives. No one would argue with that. But they think about politics in this very narrow sense of how do we improve small how do we improve policy outcomes how do we use the technocratic apparatus of government to to pass somewhat better legislation but to me that's missing the point um does that well let me let me just stop there because i've said a lot there yeah no i mean
1: <clears throat> again i uh, i think I, I get it uh it's it's the question still is i mean i would say that that ben you would say that that uh that it's happening in any case, so this this mobilizing is, is well, I,
0: I just want to say how much I, how much I agree with that and how persuasive I found your essay and I was until the u k uh, election probably a Warren and then a Bernie supporter in mm. terms of the primary, and then after the u k election, I just ripped Warren off my kind of wish list. And the reason is huh. the in the British election. The Labour Party presented a manifesto by think tank design, cobbling together uh, all of the best work that uh, people like me, you know, with uh, think tank fellowships have been able to put together in the Westminster bubble over the last five or six years. And it was exactly as you described, a impressive agenda to narrowly improve people's lives by 3.5 to 4.2%. And when this manifesto went into battle against Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings with the slogan, get Brexit done, it Hmm. was a policy prescription meets an identity battle. And I don't need to tell you which one won. It really kind of like, it was driven home to me, what a mistake it is to retreat from the politics of ethics and emotion and... Uh, identity and priorities when i saw a friend of mine who had voted for boris johnson much to my surprise in a in a, in a pub just after the election and i went to him well why did you vote why, why did you vote Tory? and he went oh, well i wasn't i couldn't really understand what was in labor's manifesto <laughs> the only policy that uh jumped out at me and this was backed up by by uh you know coverage data. This was the one policy that got a lot of got a lot of airtime in British British news was free government provided uh state Wi-Fi for all. And he went, that's just not my priority. <laughs> you know, it only costs $14.99 a month. I'm really worried about Brexit. I just want somebody to sort it out. And I realized after that conversation that everything that attracted me to the Warren Manifesto, the corporate boards, the industrial policy, was not going to make it in the primary, because it was a giant
2: American version of free, state-provided Wi-Fi for all. That's really interesting, because that goes against the conventional narrative that Bernie Bernie is the American equivalent of Corbyn, and you're sort of suggesting here that Warren had quite a bit in common with the Labour Manifesto and with what was associated with Corbyn, which was the party manifesto.
0: Well, yes, it's like the Labour Manifesto in the previous election in 2017 was actually a pretty moderate document, was actually a pretty moderate uh, document, like right? very, you know, it was like renationalise uh, the railways, which is actually something the British government is in process of doing bit by bit because it's being forced by circumstances to do anyway. And that slimmed-down uh, manifesto was much more popular with the public because it focused on priorities of nationalisation. The manifesto that was uh, built for uh, the 2019 general election, I believe, was the Warren manifesto, mm. manifesto in mm. the UK. And in terms of like Bernie and Corbyn personally, like two politicians, I think it is unfair to both of them to say that uh they are sort of transatlantic twins. Firstly, the problem and the positive about Corbyn, this is an intensely curious man. He's very interested in foreign affairs, in the popular unrest in Irian gyre, but he doesn't and has never really had the, the brain power to digest or carry through that interest in foreign affairs. And the result is this kind of garbled constant commentary on foreign affairs. Bernie Sanders is not a foreign affairs obsessive. And he reminds me far more of these early 20th-century European politicians like Leon Blum or like Attlee that had priorities. And Bernie's priority of Medicare for All m4a all day every day i think has been a transformative uh, pol- uh campaign for democratic party politics and i think that in even in a biden uh government his well, the politics that he's inspired the politicians that he's inspired will continue to hold uh uh, the Democratic Party establishment to account because they've got that prioritization. Like I don't really know where the Warren Manifesto goes from here. I think it dissipates like the Corbyn Manifesto in 2019 back into the think tanks from whence it came.
2: Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that Bernie Bernie is not a doctrinaire socialist. And in that sense... Bernie isn't as ideological as people think he is so obviously Americans anyone who's vaguely left seems very ideological from an American perspective but this is where Bernie is more of a left populist left populism is is less about policy and specifics and it's more about a style of doing politics and I think that's important to note because when when people the label socialist that Bernie um continued to use for himself and still does continue to use for himself, I think has distracted people because people think that means that Bernie has socialist policies, but it's more, and Ezra Klein made this point on Twitter and maybe, maybe elsewhere that Bernie is a socialist in ethos in his kind of ethical framework, which goes to what I was saying I mean, earlier. It's, yeah. it's a sensibility and people shouldn't misread what the socialist label really means.
1: So let me just, Untangle two things because Ben, I think your your point's right that that uh if we're what we're talking about is say shifting the Overton window on something like healthcare, care, um, I mean I would argue that it had been shifting already, given the sad state. I mean, even the fact that Obama managed to get Obamacare through and then all the trials and tribulation of the of that create an opportunity, in fact, for then uh, for Bernie to do what he's doing. But that's different from this idea of uh, both Shadi's idea of left populism, which is this ethical, this, this uh mode of mobilization uh that's tied into these values. And, you know, yes, Bernie may have shifted the Overton window and maybe now we have a very different discussion on healthcare, but that's different from, again, this idea of left populism, and this generational change. I want to push you both on that because I still think and again, full, fully taking on your point that this man still might make it, might beat Biden because of who knows what happens in uh, in Michigan, who knows what happens in the debates. Uh, but but again, I'm I'm curious whether you think that the you know whether yeah. the, the 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 this glue, the glue that you were the symbols that you were saying, this ethical stuff that you were saying is going to mobilize. At least for me, looking at Super Tuesday, I didn't see it working. That on on the merits of your argument, class inequality, all the rest of that, was swamped by a hatred of Trump and a feeling of electability, as you said at the beginning, as we started talking. How strong is this as a glue? Do you but guys think? a fear of Trump as well? Yeah, in you know, especially in minority
0: communities in the U.S. And I think doing that's you know, being talked about uh, as much as it needs to be at ten thousand feet, mm. like in the. In the British context, like where is the debate on left populism now? Like the diagnosis going on inside the populist left factions of the Labour Party is that they failed to bring in a national dimension to their ethical story and to their campaign, and that that hit a wall uh, of uh, resistance and incomprehension and. A deep folk feeling that the welfare state is about a national community, and a lot of people in the populist left of the Labour Party have been looking with envy to how Sinn Féin has been tearing up the uh, political landscape in Ireland because it com- it can com- manages to combine a populist left ethical
1: framework with nationalism
0: though we well uh uh, yes which Uh, is maybe the sweet
2: spot in a way
0: well i don't know let's talk about that well so labor has uh the problem that the labor party has right now is you know where does it go like what is its national symbolism when with the rise of a separate scottish political identity and culture labor's been entrenched sort of you know, dominant party of government now in Wales since devolution? How does an Englishness that has emerged that the rights has cultivated for for years and been seen to be very associated with, how does that clip into a Labour uh, narrative? And interestingly, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's very much the sort of Corbyn machine's favoured candidate to take over, has attempted to craft a narrative around this, and it's fallen flat on its face because... It has come across as if you're just sort of picking historical moments like that sort of Salford Dockers went on strike to support Abraham Lincoln mm. and attempting to invest them with historical memory and meaning, which is impossible if people don't remember them. Right. Right. So,
2: so I think, so let me put something out there. I think that there's, there's two different emotions that are at play here. One is fear and one is anger. And I can't claim credit for this idea, but I'm on this um group chat with a mutual friend of ours samuel kimbriel mm. who who's a um does work in political philosophy and um I don't know who exactly said this on the group chat because i don't their number just shows up. I don't know who they are, but anyway, this like mystery person on our group chat made a really interesting point that the sense of crisis that we're in paradoxically can lead to two mutually opposed outcomes it can contribute to the rise of someone like Bernie Sanders because in crisis you're going to have people who in in, um, in the throes of anger and frustration will look for a more radical and revolutionary candidate but the sense of fear and crisis can also lead to a kind of a kind of conservatism a small c conservatism where you say we are in a state of crisis Let's not ask for too much. Let's not go for revolution. Let's get rid of the proximate cause of crisis, which from their perspective is Donald Trump. So they'll say these voters will say, let's just get rid of Donald Trump and just try to have some calm and quiet and stability. And then we can worry about revolution a little bit later on once we remove the existential threat so the current moment that we're in contributes to both the rise of Bernie Sanders and the rise of Joe Biden but for different reasons how does that sound
1: that's not very compelling yeah I, but my 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 uh again my counter it's not a counter to that frame but my counter to left populism then is again it comes back to it the the crisis is or at least the economic, the inequality crisis is not big enough to actually create a revolutionary thing. In a sense, when Bernie talks about revolution, there is a kind of uh, reality here that revolution at the ballot box is kind of a stupid idea, right? Like a revolution is, is, is extra institutional often. So it's, it's, uh, you know, basically if people are calm enough to vote I'm still making the case to you guys both that we're not at a point where all of these these categories that should be uh, for a left populist to succeed, uh, coalescing people, they're not there yet. I mean, that's that that is the lesson that, like, well, what? I, maybe I'd not.
0: I push back on that. Like, it's very popular at the moment to criticise aesthetic socialism. Oh, all you want to do is have like rose emojis on your uh on your twitter profile and like tweet things in sort of like funky soviet constructivist uh fonts (laughs) and you're not you're not really uh you're not really a social democrat or a socialist it's very popular to like blame uh a sort of rude behavior the sort of uh chapo style and it's it's very common. There's a whole class of punditry that's truly transatlantic, which is about sort of elder, elder men sort of tut- tutting at uh, younger sort of women and uh, uh, and men for their political choices. And looking at what's happening in the UK and in the US, I feel very thankful that we have this movement that's attempting to do the most normy thing possible, which is revive. You know in the UK like just over hundred years old and in the US much older, political party right you know if you look at Europe, like the you know and the events that have been happening over the last few days on the Greek border have like deeply kind of shocked and upset me with the, com- the, the Commission's like full embrace of like urbanistic iconography and attitude and willingness to suspend basic human rights of refugees and migrants in, in France. And that's been able to happen because of the Passockification of all the major European social democratic parties. Right. Nobody went in to the French Socialist Party with this agenda and attempted to to revive it. You know, people in, you know, I'm also a French citizen, but like, it would be, you know, we would be so lucky, us uh, French citizens, if there was a problem as bad as Super Tuesday and Bernie's performance or Corbyn having revived uh, the the Labour Party in terms of men- membership.
2: And this is why it's outrageous that the Democratic Party establishment, look, I respect Democratic outcomes and Biden did better on Super Tuesday. So I there's no like rigging. There isn't a, a conspiracy there. Biden won more voters on Super Tuesday. And if he continues doing that going forward, then, yeah, he'll be the nominee. And we have to accept that. But the but before Super Tuesday, there was this sense of these Democratic Party elders and establishment figures, essentially, as you said, Ben, tutting the very young, enthusiastic supporters of Bernie and saying, oh, look how angry they are. Look how bad they are, whatever it might be. And I'm like, here's a party that doesn't know that it has a very strong asset here, that there's a group of people who are excited about politics and you have, you have this el- you have this older generation of quite frankly, boring establishment figures who don't understand what it means to excite voters and what it means to actually introduce new ideas that are inspiring. Yeah, and for a party to sort of self-sabotage in that way and to try to diminish a whole wing of their party because they're just lame, I find it remarkable. No, but yeah, they, want, I agree they want
1: Obama to basically package up neoliberalism with like really nice rhetoric. And that's, that's the lesson they learned. That's how, because again, I mean, in, that's, that's a, that's, that's true nominally in what you say, but there's interest to be involved. And in fact, like every large donor to the Democratic Party soiled their pants at Liz Warren and, and Bernie Sanders. So let's be straight types up proposals. about it. That
2: these people are prioritizing their economic interests and they're doing, and they would rather the party be moribund and boring and lame rather than having a real dynamic party. That speaks to something bigger. They They just don't want that. That's not their interest. Well, they
1: want to win, and they want to like actually do well by winning. I mean, that's that's really great record
2: of winning. So here's the thing: when people say, "Well, moderates have a better chance of winning," I look at the record, and to me, it's a record of failure. I look at 2004 with John Kerry. I look at 2016. Are we forgetting 2016 with with Hillary Clinton? Um, with 2000 with Al Gore. Like, it's not a great record. But they look
1: to Bill Clinton and they look to Obama and they say these were two, these were two term, eight, you know, eight year presidents who embraced, you know, uh, big business, you know, centrism, however you want it. And Obama, more even than Clinton, though there were both real talents at this, you know, were able to do this sort of,
2: Reaching to people's stuff, and I and I, I that's the. But this is revisionism because Obama ran in two thousand eight not as the centrist candidate. He was competing against the centrist candidate or who, what was perceived to be the more yeah. center left candidate, Hillary Clinton, and he was mobilizing a new generation of self identifying progressives who thought that Obama was going to push on this. We found out that he was more of a centrist, but I remember because I became. I became more involved in democratic politics and more excited than ever about democratic politics in 2007 and 2008 because of Barack Obama. A lot of us thought that he was offering something distinctive and new that was counter to the traditionalism of Hillary Clinton and the broader Clinton establishment. And to say and to kind of recast Obama as a centrist, yeah, he became that, but that's not what we thought he was. Well, so
0: one uh, thought I have, which makes me still optimistic about, and it's uh, unusual for me to be an optimist in a in a podcast or a conversation, but I'm enjoying it this evening, <laughs> is you know the coalition that Bernie has brought together of millennials and you know black and white and Latinos of uh, all ages very much is the future of the Democratic Party in terms of makeup and the coalition of African-American voters and older white voters of that Joe Biden has is, you know, that is going to be a smaller share of Democratic primary voters going forward uh, uh, over the rest of our lives. You know, I think a lot of US kind of politics right now and the way I try and sketch out the pivotal events over the next, you know, 10, 15 years will depend on how profoundly the country changes when we pass the demographic uh, tipping point in Texas. And if... Texas becomes uh, a blue state. You know, there's a very different path open to the presidency, which will be very appealing to run through by a populist left uh, uh, or post-populist left uh
2: Sort of a well, what do you make but, of this racial divide? So this is interesting that Hispanics versus whites. Well, I, I wasn't quite saying that, but this idea, and maybe maybe that's. I mean,
1: that was the interesting thing about Super Tuesday that that Bernie took Hispanics and and uh, Joe Biden yeah, took African Americans. But, but I think it's also that, um, but not those under thirty, right?
2: Yeah. Um, so with black voters under thirty, that's where Bernie has um, a lot of traction. But for some reason. Black voters who are like over thirty-five for forty—that's where Bernie. Well, this-
0: you know, these this is a community that's got so much to lose and has suffered so much structural racism, and I completely understand. And so, resp- why wouldn't? But I don't. I don't. But I, I don't understand see- and respect their choice. That like, ultimately, at its most profound level, like politics is about every few years the country comes together and we decide who is going to protect us. And you know, we have to be honest that. The you know Bernie didn't didn't speak to microphone, African, and Bernie. microphone. Bernie didn't speak to <laughs> African Americans in a way that they they felt that he was going to be able to protect them and uh, and uh, defend them against uh, the dangers of uh, another Trump presidency or like creeping kind of white nationalism and Republican governance.
2: You know, I think that because they to- thought that Bernie had less of a chance of winning? Like, what, what did Bernie fail to convey to, to voters who were fearful in that regard? I'm, I I'm think just, it's not sh- just
0: that. I think they were frightened that he wouldn't be able to win, and I think that uh, they were scared that this could be a kind of – you know, this could be another disaster for the Democratic Party. And I think but the also, campaign has stayed on board.
2: But there's also some point that suggested that black voters writ large are just generally more conservative. They're less left. They're less liberal in quotation marks. And even on like moral and social issues as well. That's
0: true. That's true. So
2: I think there's something interesting going on here that in some sense, white voters are White voters, especially educated elite white voters, at least some of them, when that goes for both supporters of Bernie and supporters of Warren, um, are more progressive in certain ways.
0: Uh, well, I do think that one area where the campaign appears to have pivoted is, you know, moving into ads heavily featuring Obama, Obama and trying to, it, the campaign's already trying to present a more kind of inclusive uh, image and expand the tent than where it was kind of three or four uh,
1: weeks ago. And I think it's something that we're going to be discussing for a long
0: time, like...
1: Can we talk about one other thing? You, you mentioned at the beginning, Ben, I just want to get back to it, is it's the foreign policy thing. And you were saying that, you know, uh that Bernie sort of opened up an ability to sort of talk about some things. And, you know, depending on, even if there is more legs to the campaign, you'll still be able to sort of, Maybe even are we talking about shifting the Overton window on some of these things? How do you, how do you think about that? You want to say a few words? Well, one of about- the most
0: important things about any political campaign is even if you're not sure you're going to win, you need to use it as a marketing campaign for your ideas and to get them, uh, you know, being seen with national attention. And I think the fact that the Bernie campaign's foreign policy wanted to highlight a different approach, firstly from the classical left. Uh, approach, which has this great weakness of not being interested in uh, developing an anti-authoritarian message or strategy of its own. And then also like deeply questioning the Obama foreign policy establishment's uh, uh, record. And like certain kind of key issues, like uh, in the Middle East, such as Saudi Arabia or or Israel Palestine, And I think that's been a hugely positive uh, contribution to the national debate. And you know, I want to see I want to see more of that. I want to uh, see where so, that goes.
1: So just wanted before you say, jump in, Shadi. I mean, because I think you two have a lot to talk about. It'd be really interesting. But uh, to highlight, you you did you've written two pieces uh, for the Guardian recently, basically about some of these issues, Ben. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. With your colleague uh, David Adler, David Adler, yeah, yeah who, uh, uh, both good articles. We'll put them in the show notes for people to read. Uh, but uh, go ahead, Shadi. What were you going to say?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I like one. Re- so Ben and David's article on what would a progressive foreign politics look like, and maybe you can say more about what that means to say not progressive foreign policy, but progressive foreign politics. And one of one of Ben's arguments, I think, is. That we shouldn't have this separation between domestic and foreign policy, that if there's a broader progressive vision, that it's connected and intertwined and we have to bring it together. And I think that that's a really important uh, contribution to the debate. And I think Israel-Palestine speaks to this, that I look, I don't think Israel-Palestine is the central issue. Um, I think that it's 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 become reduced in importance over time. That said, why it's important for symbolic reasons and for ethical and moral reasons, because if you have a strong position in favor of Palestinian rights, it's a proxy for your broader foreign policy. And when I see a candidate who's willing to go out on a limb and say potentially and not just potentially actually controversial things, criticizing Israel and even talking about things that a major candidate never talked about before, which is making aid to Israel conditional. That used to be a third rail. And now the, the fact that Bernie is actually willing to go there and talk about this relationship in a critical, in a critical, uh critical way. It speaks to the fact that Bernie Sanders has a set of moral commitments And if you're willing to kind of go against the grain and going against the elite bipartisan foreign policy consensus, it says that you're willing to also go against the elite consensus on authoritarian allies, on Saudi Arabia, on Egypt and saying, hey, We're not going to do business as usual with these problematic authoritarian allies anymore. We're going to completely revamp these relationships and Saudi Arabia will no longer be a close ally. It will no longer be a linchpin of our broader Middle East strategy. So for me, there's an ethical framework that connects these different topics opposing the Yemen war, which is incredibly important. Um, and the list goes on. So I think that's what we have to start building. Do we have a commitment to American values abroad? And that's what we have to be speaking to. But please, Ben.
0: Uh, Well, uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, one of the things that I find, I found very interesting developing in these articles is trying to question the very kind of concept of foreign policy. And if you sort of go back, uh, and there's some very good, uh, Uh, journal articles on this that we can maybe put in the show notes to try and work out like where does the concept of foreign policy as distinct from foreign politics or politics that takes place abroad uh, come from it's very clear that it was a strategy to insulate the hand of the crown in 18th century England to give it an exclusive domain to act abroad in the name of the national interest. And really our critique of foreign, poli- uh, foreign policy as a concept begins with this concept of there being a unitary national interest. And like clearly, and the coronavirus is a perfect example of this, is there a unitary American national interest that unites the drug companies interests on this matter normal american citizens interests on this matter absolutely not like the drug companies that are currently trying to push up price push up prices or profit out of these uh, uh these events um kind of internationally or the drug companies that have sought to increase the costs of healthcare and medical uh, access around the world are not aligned with the interests of your average American citizen when it comes to global healthcare and global disease uh, prevention. So that's the first concept we've tried to kind of really, really unpack. And the concept of the national interest has always been clearly for American history, whose national interest? And interest has been a stand-in for the interests of, uh, of elites, uh, uh, of uh, of, elite, uh, of of sort of moneyed, empowered uh uh, Elites. Like our second concept is that, you know, in a hyper connected 21st century technological society, it is really sort of impossible to draw clear lines between issues that are exclusively domestic and issues that are uh, exclusively uh, foreign. And we need to think of any attempt to kind of fix one issue. Let's take, for example, just looking at your computer there, like fixing issues to do with internet governance. Mm. That's going to be impossible to do without a global campaign, a global coalition with progressive forces and allies and pressure within international institu- institutions to create a functioning, uh, you know, an improved uh, internet as one aspect of the global commons. And a lot of the work I've done on kleptocracy really sort of unites this uh, together. If you want to look at... You know, one of the concepts we developed is that American sort of thinking often suffers from what we call a thinking often suffers from what we call a passport problem. Mm. And it is the idea that a major that an American hedge fund or a major American bank has an American passport and acts in the American national interest, even when it deals with Russia. But when we look at the transnational infrastructure of global illicit finance, well whose side was Deutsche Bank really on when it was dealing with the uh, with laundering the Russian elites' uh, finances and full knowledge of the political consequences of that, both for Russia and uh, uh, Western democracies. We need to think beyond that. And what really attracts me to the Bernie agenda has been this infrastructural approach of trying to focus on uh, the global infrastructure of finance or climate and energy in order to achieve a better global commons.
1: I, you know, and that's something you and I have talked about, about this, because on the one hand... Uh I think rhetorically, uh, especially on the left, I think this is one of those places where it's easy to dismiss a lot of this stuff because you talk about solidarity and like finding, uh, you know, uh, kindred movements around and leveraging that. But, but the real reality and you, you're alluding to it now when talking about kleptocracy and, and the international system is that Ultimately, uh, you need the United States leading on all of these issues to actually achieve anything, to actually shape the environment where you can even envision kindred forces rising up. Because this is my not-
0: great fear about the Biden administration. Like, I think that Biden can win.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that Biden's shown that he can bring out turnout. I think he's a competitive candidate. I know he's going to have a lot of money be- behind him. Of course. Um, but my fear, and we were sort of both uh, joking about this uh, on Twitter the other day, is that Biden could be a sort of American Brezhnev, or perhaps more accurately, an American Chinenko, a sort of senile, a sort of elderly caretaker administration, whose pitch to the party establishment was that he wouldn't... Uh, do any difficult, radical economic reforms that would make life disruptive for them or undermine their power and wouldn't challenge an overextended hegemonic and interventionist uh, foreign policy.
2: He'll be the placeholder placebo president. And maybe that's OK for a couple of years. I guess some people are OK with it. But if our, if our theory of the case is that um, the failures of the Obama era contributed to the rise of Trump, that Trump is a symptom of a broader set of structural problems and not the cause, then if we're returning to the status quo ante, if we're returning to normalcy, normalcy is what helped Trump become Trump and become our president. So if we're returning to normalcy, are we at risk of repeating the same cycle and the same set of mistakes that lead to the rise of right-wing populism or contribute to the continuity of right-wing populism. And that's my fear. And that's why a lot of this comes down to what our fundamental starting premises are. Why are we where we are? Is Trump an aberration or does he re- represent something deeper? If he re- represents something deeper, then we have to address those deeper issues. And I don't have much confidence that Biden can, can or wants to or is willing to address those deeper issues. And that's my real fear that we might have a period of I don't even think it will be a period of relative calm, because if Trump will still be around kind of raising hell and being controversial and all of that and creating this sense of grievance, what we know is that even when you have a centrist president, Republicans don't don't, you know, just be be quiet and comfortable. Oh, we're going to work with Biden. We're going to work across the aisle. No, they're not going to do that. Right. So there's still going to be polarization. There's still going to be anger. Um And that's going to be fomented for another four years. So, I, you know, we're we're naive Democrats and liberals. We get naive about this when we think we have a unifying president like Biden who seems unifying. But what we find out is that the polarization continues? Well,
0: so you know, I couldn't agree more with that, and yeah. I'm very much in agreement with you on the, you know, the the court, Trump being a symptom of the status quo, and not a a non aberration uh, to the status quo. And this brings me out to a lot of like the potential of the Bernie movement and why, you know, almost like regardless of did it w- can it win this nomination? I still think it could. could there yeah. is a there is a chance if something spectacular happens over the next few. A few days. They're really like, you know, maybe there are like three issues here that sort of draw me to that. The first is, you know, what I think Annie Larry wrote in the, uh, wrote, wrote a piece the other day talking about the great American affordability crisis and how despite 10 years of economic boom, you know, we have a situation where 140 million Americans are living through healthcare related financial hardship. That one in five Americans can't pay their bills at the end of the month. And there's been this price inflation there. If you believe like I do that that's a key driver of populist discontent I don't see Biden being able to do, to deal with that if you if you want to look at the second category which is the the racism theory of Trump that Trump represents a sort of some dark force and strain and you know Right wing nationalism in the country. I don't really know how else that can be confronted apart from with a growing, dynamic, aggressive, anti-racist movement. I don't really think we have a choice about that. And the third issue, which for me is very important and is the context in which all of this is taking place is, is climate change. Like I'm personally of the belief that climate change is going to start having over the next five to ten years. A similar effect on the world order as a major war. And I think we have a taste of that with how the coronavirus is already disrupting our fragile system. And I don't think we really have a choice apart from to continue to kind of push, uh, you know, an aggressive, uh, agenda setting, uh, movement on that issue, which I don't really think Biden understands.
2: Yeah. And that's why, and that's why I should say that. The contributing causes that are leading to the rise of right and left wing populism, the anger, the fear, the outrage, the sense that something is going fundamentally wrong. We're still relatively stable in America. What I really worry about, what you're alluding to, Ben, is that 10, 20 years going forward, these structural causes are going to get even worse. And I really worry about what that's going to look like Um I know Demir is, uh, Demir is keeping time. Well, you no,
1: no. I mean, I, I, you know, given, given that we're coming out on time here, I have, I have one question for the both of you, which I think, I think, uh, maybe takes us out in a, in a tiny okay, way. Here. Yeah. Um, there was a, there was a tweet that I think actually, did you share this? No, our Ben Haddad actually shared it with us earlier today. It was by this, some guy called Mike Racine. I don't know. Uh, and he says, no offense, but some of you who warn people need to get over it. When Bernie lost in 2016, we didn't cry this much. We sucked it up and voted for Trump. Was the tweet. Yeah, it's, now, a it's a great tweet, but the, the question is this, uh, you said four years, uh, stasis, maybe not so bad. Give me a prediction how, uh, let's say Bernie, uh, Biden wins, Bernie goes down. Ocasio Cortez, you know, the perhaps the figurehead of the movement, even though she won't be president in four years, she's still too young. Um, what's the strategy you think now? Given everything you just said, Shadi, is that Republicans are not going to be playing ball with the centrist unifying Biden. That's nonsense. Of course not. So what's the strategy for the movement? Do they back Biden for four years of stasis or do they heighten the contradictions?
2: Well, I think that, look, I, if it's Biden versus Trump. No, Biden wins. Oh, okay. Are, are you heightening the contradictions for four years? Well, that's what's going to happen inevitably, that if four years of Biden means that the fundamental issues aren't being addressed and they're just merely postponed until some later date. So the con, you know, to use the phrasing, the, the, the contradictions will be heightened. That said, if Biden loses, which I think is actually, um, I don't want to say it's very likely and God, God help me. As critical as I am of Biden, I don't want another four years of Trump and I can't deal with it because it's exhausting. And I, um, I really hope if Biden is the nominee that he will win. That said, I worry about his ability to be Trump for reasons that we mentioned earlier. And I think that the only, pu- the only silver lining of Biden losing to Trump, the only thing that I think It could help lead people it could help lead people to is an understanding that centrism or center leftism is not a sure bet people always see that as the safe option if we want to win an election let's not rock the boat let's go with the reliable center left candidate if biden loses it will it will i think i hope Um, And I hope it doesn't come to this. But I hope if that happens, people will finally realize it's not a safe bet. And that's not the way to go if you want to beat someone like Trump. So I think either way, there's going to be a set of realizations. And I think that, look, we're in this for the long haul. Me and Ben, we have a theory of the case that isn't about four-year electoral cycles. We're looking forward because we want to build something bigger. And this is where someone like AOC – I think is actually like an amazing combination of different things. She brings a lot of the Bernie class critiques, but she's also a, a more flexible, dynamic, um, candidate who is nimble and can bring more people into the tent. And I think that AOC, um, is really the promise of a kind of, um, uh, you know, an unusually dynamic left populism.
1: Ben, again. Biden wins. How do you? What's the strategy? Well, the first strategy is just
2: don't stop. Like,
0: don't start building, advancing. You know, trying to. You know, think about the long march uh, through the institutions. Do what you can to like broaden that cultural and ethical project. In terms of like free tips towards like future campaigns, I think that uh, there is a, a consensus that. Then there needs to be a little bit of a course correction away from the coarser part of, uh, Bernie Twitter towards the AOC, uh, online demeanor, you know, full of a sort of radical love and embracing of different, uh, of different, ca- of, you know, different sort of centrist camps or left-wing camps like the, the Warren people. Uh, I think that, and this is a, a problem that I actually don't, don't really know. I can't, there's no like quick, like, you know, ameliorative strategy that you can do online about it is I think that the, the left on both sides of the Atlantic has to develop an old people strategy, you know, how to just break off more of their, more
2: of that vote, but also a big 10 strategy that you have. Like we, we need a left populism that welcomes center, center left folks and says, Hey, we're, we maybe don't agree on everything. We have policy differences, but here's an inspiring candidate. And again, I'm thinking about AOC here. You don't agree with her on everything, but she's a unifying candidate, and she wants to make space for people who are quote unquote maybe more closely tied to the Democratic establishment. I don't know if we can win if we're always fighting. At some point, we have to say yes. We will fight against what is worth fighting against. But we will also welcome people. Um, and I know that's hard and that's going to be a difficult balancing act. And we have to know who we don't necessarily want to welcome. And we probably don't want to welcome the see C- the former CEO of Goldman Sachs or ex billionaire or whatever. There, it there's might your be. problem.
1: There's your key problem, but go on.
2: Yeah. But I think that AOC, people,
1: given that they're the constituency, but,
2: but the know. AOC ethos, I think, um, offers some of that promise. It's not going to end. And we have to be creative and we have to be somewhat flexible. Like I consider myself to be an ideologically flexible person. I'm heterodox. I'm not particularly rigid when it comes to a particular discourse against billionaires. Should we have some of that? Yes. But should we also know how and when to pivot to bring more people into our movement? I think we have to find creative ways of doing that. Gentlemen, any Thank final
1: you. words, <laughs> but, um, Ben,
0: I think that the course correction that needs to be done in terms of presentation and like coalition building, I think that's the easy part. The difficult part, I think, is trying to break off 30, 35 percent of the old vote and bringing them into a kind of necessary election winning coalition. And that I don't have any immediate answers for.
1: All right, gentlemen, let's go uh, <laughs> have some dinner. <laughs>
0: okay. thanks, right. Damir. Bye bye. <laughs>